So we have been looking at the parables of Matthew this spring, and um, we are coming to the end of the book. We've got a few left, but we are starting to get close to the end of the book and the passion narrative that we will um, kind of enter into a few weeks from now. But we are in Matthew chapter 21 now, Matthew chapter 21, and I believe we're starting at verse 33, but I'm not quite there yet. Um, yes, Matthew 21, verse 33 to 46, which is the end of the chapter. It's on page 1533 in your pew Bibles, otherwise the words will be on the screens as well. It's called the parable of the tenants, and this is Jesus himself speaking. Listen to another parable, he says, There was a landowner who planted a vineyard. He put a wall around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he rented the vineyard to some farmers and went away on a journey. When the harvest time approached, he sent his servants to the tenants to collect his fruit. The tenants seized his servants. They beat one, killed another, and stoned a third. Then he sent other servants to them, more than the first time, and the tenants treated them the same way. Last of all, he sent his son to them. They will will respect my son, he said. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to each other, this is the heir. Come, let's kill him and take his inheritance. So they took him and threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Therefore, when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? He will bring those wretches wretches to a wretched end, they replied. And he will rent the vineyard to other tenants who will give him his share of the crop at harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard Jesus' parables, they knew he was talking about them. They looked for a way to arrest him, but they were afraid of the crowd because the people held that he was a prophet. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Okay, so this morning, this morning we come to a parable that um, it's not directed at the disciples, it's directed at the, the religious leaders of Israel at the time, the chief priests and the Pharisees, based on where we started reading there. We didn't, we didn't really realize that until the very end. But, but this parable is specifically directed at the religious leaders of Israel at that time. And of course, the, the religious leaders represented um, all of unbelieving Israel. And I would argue that they represent um, people who have taken their stand against the kingdom of God throughout, throughout history. Jesus tells the story in order to show them what they look like in the eyes of God with 
with, respond, with, with regard to, to how they have responded to, to Jesus' own ministry and to how they had responded to the ministry of, of John the Baptist, the, the penultimate prophet to the Messiah, Jesus Christ. And, and really, um, the attitude that the religious leaders representing uh, God's people throughout the history of Israel had, had viewed and treated the prophets, which is, which is, is not very well. And Jesus understandably then paints a very unflattering picture here. And yet even as he paints this picture, even as he shows um, the, the religious leaders what they look like in God's eyes and, and warn them of judgment, he also shows them a picture of God's love and grace and compassion and long-suffering patience as well. And so even though this parable seems uh, damning and, and condemning, there is this thread of grace that weaves all the way through it. That being the case, the picture of God's love and grace and compassion and patience, which we will see in the parable even as we discuss it, requires a proper response. It requires a proper and appropriate response. And I'll tell you what that response should have been for the, the chief priests and the Pharisees. I'll tell you what that response should be for us as well. We should respond in humility and repentance and wonder and love and praise. And the fact that the religious leaders failed to respond appropriately reveals to us hearts that had both refused and denied God's grace, which serves, I think, as a warning to us as well, even those of us who have been comfortably situated in the church our entire lives, it serves as a warning not to ever reject or stand against the gracious overtures of God. The gracious overtures as extended to us in our own lives, the gracious overtures of God as extended to others that we know about as well. Now, the parable itself, which maybe seems a little bit strange to us, would have been very familiar and easy to understand to those who first heard it. And by this, I mean at least the setting and the scenario. See, in the, in the first century Roman Empire, it was quite common for, for wealthy families to own parcels of land uh, throughout the empire, whether they be in, in Palestine or, or in Italy or in northern Africa, etc. Common practice in these situations would be to, to lease, to, to rent out these lands to, to tenant farmers who would, um, you know, cultivate that land, look over it, make sure the seeds were planted, make sure that, that the seeds were tended to, make sure that the harvest was brought in. Then the farmers who um, were in charge of stewarding the land would, would then take a, a portion of the proceeds or a, a portion of the harvest for themselves. But then a portion was also set aside for the landowner when he would come to collect it as well. 
That was the landowner's income, which allowed him and, and his family to, to travel, as in the case of this parable, or to, to live in some metropolitan area and just kind of live off the proceeds from the lands that they owned around the empire. <clears throat> These wealthy landowners didn't often go and collect their due, their proceeds themselves, but, but they had servants, they had representatives that they would send uh, to collect from the tenant farmers. Now, something that we should be aware of, this was interesting me to, to me to read um, in the commentaries, is that these wealthy landowners, uh, as a general rule, were not known for being particularly charitable toward their tenant farmers, quite the opposite. In fact, they often exploited those who, who they had um, contracted with to, to steward their lands. And that said, the first thing that we should notice as we consider this parable is that the landowner in Jesus' parable is not like that at all. So what I said a few minutes ago is that this this setting and this scenario would have, been, would have been very familiar to the first listeners of this parable, but the, the first surprise would probably have come to these people that were listening uh, from just how this landowner was characterized. This landowner is incredibly patient with his tenant farmers, even though they repeatedly mistreat his representatives in the worst ways and try to withhold the produce that, that they were um, harvesting from his own lands. The tenant farmers abuse the landowner's representatives and, and finally they kill them. And even, the, even so, the landowner continues to send people more and more servants, representatives to collect his due. And the tenants, the stewards continue to abuse and mistreat and kill them. Finally, the landowner sends his son and they kill him. And you notice in the parable that it was a premeditated killing. They saw him on the horizon coming and they saw an opportunity to take for themselves what didn't belong to them. And so the picture here on the other side of the landowner, the picture of the tenants farmers is of a people in absolute rebellion of the rightful owner of the land. Now, the details in this parable represent significant things. You've probably caught on to what most of these are, but just to clarify, the vineyard represents Israel. The landowner is God. The tenants, in its most immediate context, are Israel's religious leaders of that time, and as I mentioned, also all the way down through the ages all of those who in unbelief have rejected the rightful rule of God. The servants or representatives are the prophets sent by God to, to speak his word and the landowner's son, you know, is Jesus Christ himself. Which means in a sense, Jesus is telling a story about what the chief priests and religious leaders are currently at that very moment doing to him. 
And because approximately in Matthew's gospel where we are right now, they are abusing him, and in just mere days, they will take him outside the walls of Jerusalem, and they will indeed kill him. Jesus holds this parable up as a mirror to them and says, this is what you look like to God. This is what you look like to God. You are in rebellion against me, which means you are in rebellion against the truth. And being in rebellion against the truth and the Christ and the kingdom and God the Father himself has serious implications. Even so, consider this aspect of the parable for a moment. I've already mentioned it. I want to talk about the exaggerated patience of the landowner. Textual critics throughout history have pointed out how this parable, uh, in one sense, is totally unreasonable, that no landowner would ever act this way. No landowner would be walked over like this by his tenant farmers for this long. Well, that's the point, really. No human landowner would have showed this kind of long-suffering patience. But this landowner represents God, right? And God continues in his love and grace, continuing to send prophet after prophet to his people. And throughout history, every time his people reject them and him, he continues to send more until finally... He sends his own son, Jesus Christ. What a beautiful picture of God's grace that he would ultimately send what, that he would ultimately send who was most dear, was most important, was most loved by him. You know, historical accounts tell us that Landowners in the Roman Empire would sometimes deal with deadbeat tenant farmers by hiring assassins to go and just get rid of them so that they could start fresh. Our God, on the other hand, sends servant after servant, his prophets, and then his very son. Why? We should ask that question, why? And we need to know this answer. Because God does not delight in the destruction of the wicked. Rather, he delights when sinners turn from their evil ways in repentance and are converted to him. He delights in that so much that he tries again and again and again and again to reach us. He pursues us. He pursues us even when we mistreat him terribly, even when we ignore him, even when we stand against him. He is there with open arms saying, it's not too late. Turn toward me. I'm here. I'm ready to receive you. 
And so Jesus, even as he gives this this dire warning to the chief priests and the Pharisees and and to unbelieving Israel, simultaneously shows them this, this glorious picture of a God waiting and eager to bless them if only they will recognize and acknowledge and repent of their sin. And what is the sin highlighted in this parable? There are a number of them actually, but... But the one that's really highlighted for me is that these chief priests and these teachers of the law, these Pharisees, as represented by the tenant farmers, had forgotten that the vineyard, that the land, that the people, that the universe belongs to God. The religious leaders were treating the the vineyard as if it belonged to them when, when in fact it belongs to God and his son. In other words, they are being very, very poor stewards. Very poor stewards. In fact, they made the same mistake that many of us make in our own lives. lives. When we act as if All of these things that we have and all of this that we enjoy belongs to us. So when we do that, what we're we're trying to do is to, to put ourselves in God's place, which itself is a picture of fallen humanity's heart rebellion against the scriptures and against the prophets and against John the Baptist and against Jesus Christ himself. Therefore, as we look at this parable, which which beautifully sets forth the love and patience of God and which also sets forth the the, the wickedness of Israel in the first century in Jesus' time. We can't stand back. We can't stand back in objective um, condemnation and say, oh, I can't believe they did that. Wow, what jerks. So glad I'm not like that. Scripture doesn't allow us to do that. Scripture doesn't allow us to do that because Scripture is standing over us and examining our own hearts and our own motivations for for doing things. And so we can't stand back in objective detachment and and judge because this this parable is just as much for us. Because look, we have experienced the blessings and the privilege is poured out on us in this church of God, where God, his word and and the fruits of his ministry are, are poured out for us to enjoy. And in the face of those blessings and privileges, we too are sometimes guilty of hardening our hearts to God's word, at least certain parts of God's word. We too are often guilty of of ignoring God's rebukes and God's warnings as he gives them to us in scripture. And because that is the case for all of us sinners, we stand right where the chief priests and the Pharisees stood when Jesus first told this parable. We must not forget or take for granted or misuse or misunderstand the great blessings given to us by God. We must not forget that the kingdom of God in which we have been invited to live and flourish belongs to God 
and to his son, Jesus Christ. We must know our place. We are servants, called to hear, called to obey, called to worship, and called to represent the landowner, to represent our great God. And our great God desires that we produce fruit in accordance with our repentance and that we offer that fruit back to him in humility and gratitude and praise. So then, as I said, all of us are called to self-examination when we read and consider this parable. And as a comfort, as a comfort to those of us who do take heed to the warning, who do examine our lives and in repentance and joy turn toward God time after time when we fall on our faces. As a word of comfort and assurance, we are told here in this parable that God's kingdom will be established whether we or others embrace it or not. Look with me for a moment at verses 42 and 44. This maybe requires some explanation. Jesus said to them, have you never read the scriptures? And then he quotes, the stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. The Lord has done this and it is marvelous in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you that the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people who will produce its fruit. He who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces, but he on whom it falls will be crushed. <clears throat> After questioning the people who were standing around him, Jesus immediately turns and offers uh, an explanation of sorts of this parable. He references Psalm 118, verses 22 and 23, and he connects the parable with the prophetic word of the psalmist. The stone the builders rejected has become the capstone. And Jesus claims that these words ultimately apply to himself. Commentators also point out that this is a reference to Daniel 2, verses 33 and 44 as well. Let me just quickly read those verses. This is part of Daniel's vision that he is interpreting for King Nebuchadnezzar. While you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and smashed them. Then bumping to verse 44. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It will crush all those kingdoms and bring them to an end, but it will itself endure forever. So Jesus claims that his kingdom is the kingdom that Daniel dreamt about. His kingdom would be established just like the one in Daniel's vision, the one that destroys all the other human kingdoms and lasts forever. Jesus makes this bold claim that even though it has and would continue to be opposed by the religious leaders of Israel and countless others throughout history, his kingdom is unstoppable. It will be established, it will be advanced, and it will outlast all other kingdoms and continue forever. And that is why Jesus communicates 
That is what Jesus communicates in that strange statement in verse 44 when he says, he who falls on the stone will be broken to pieces, but on whomever it falls, it will scatter him like dust. Option A or option B. It doesn't sound like a good option either way. But there's this old rabbinic saying that goes something like this. If a pot falls on a rock, woe to the pot. And if a rock falls on a pot, woe to the pot. Either way, woe to the pot. It will be crushed either way. If you stumble over Christ as Lord, Savior, and King, you will be crushed, you will be broken. If you oppose Jesus as Lord, Savior, and King, you will be crushed, you will be broken. The kingdom of Jesus Christ will be established. In this way, Jesus sets before the religious leaders and us two choices. We can either be wholehearted members of his kingdom and be blessed, or we can oppose his kingdom and be crushed and broken. Jesus speaks this message of judgment against those who deny the will and purposes of God, but again, with a gracious encouragement to even now at this late hour, turn from their rebellion, a gracious encouragement rooted in love. It's amazing how Jesus speaks even to those who had murder in their hearts, murder of him. When the prophets came to Israel throughout its history and rebuked God's people, you have to understand they were not sent because God hated his people. They were not sent because God wanted them to be destroyed. The prophets were sent to God's people for their own good. Confrontation and rebuke and even punishment are not acts that are carried out by someone who dislikes you. They are acts of someone who loves and cares for you deeply. Jesus pronounces judgment against sinners in the spirit of the landowner with a patient desire to see them turn from the sin that would destroy them and joyfully embrace the blessings of God. And so even in this parable's dire rebuke and warning are threads of grace designed to shake us from our spiritual slumber and spiritual rebellion against God and encourage us to run to Jesus Christ, the only one who can rescue us from our sin. Brothers and sisters, the way we respond to God's word and God's son is a mark of the presence or absence of grace in our lives. Our only hope is in Jesus Christ. And we will share, we will share in possession of the vineyard if we will but trust in him. That is the message of God's word for us today. Amen. Let's pray.